0: are real geniuses richard jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you he hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field sleep science cancer stem cells ketogenic diets and more here come the geniuses this is the finding genius podcast
1: with richard jacobs hello this is richard jacobs with the finding genius podcast part of the finding genius foundation I have an interesting guest today, Sheldon Kripsky. He's a Lenore Sturm Professor of Humanities and Social Sciences in the Department of Urban and Environmental Policy and Planning, a part of the School of Arts and Sciences at Tufts University, also an adjunct professor in the Department of Public Health and Community Medicine at Tufts. And he has a book that I found really interesting called Conflicts and Interest in Science, How Corporate-Funded Academic Research Can Threaten Public Health. So Sheldon, thanks for coming.
2: Okay, my pleasure. Yeah, Tell me
1: a bit about your your work. You know at the university and then how you came to come up with a premise
2: for your book. Well, my work at the university involves teaching in a graduate program where I teach courses on ethics and science and environmental ethics, and uh, I do a lot of research on issues of genetics and society, dealing okay. with ethics and policy. so the as far as the the book you mentioned, I've been working for about 30 years on issues of ethics and science and spent many years studying conflicts of interest in science. And the book is a culmination of articles that I've contributed having to do with that issue.
1: So over the years, what subjects have been very controversial in the science world?
2: Well, for me, the concern has to do with the independence of the university from corporate influence. We've seen in the past recent years, the importance of objectivity in science and who to trust, which scientists to trust, just as we have to figure out which media to trust. So I I got involved in this because corporations try to influence the things that I was doing, the research that I was doing some years ago. And I realized how important it was to have universities that are free of corporate influence or political influence Uh, for that matter. And I began to think of ways that we could try to achieve that.
1: But are there any examples in the past of, uh, I don't know, just blatant abuse or, you know, corporations guiding and steering research in a way that it really twisted what the uh, scientific outcome would have been?
2: Well, yes, it happens in two or three types of ways. First of all, It happens when corporations fund research at universities and in funding the research, they also control whether the research gets published and what the outcome of the research is. So in the book there, you'll find many examples of this, one in particular where a corporation funded a scientist in California and she was doing research that she felt was honorable. She came out with results that the corporation didn't like. And as a result, she didn't realize she signed a contract that says that they had control over whether she could publish it. So that that's an example of where a scientist inadvertently signs a contract and doesn't realize that the contract gives the funder control over whether they can publish their results.
1: What tends not to get published? Just unfavorable results or other yes, reasons that that stuff won't get published.
2: Sure. If you're a corporation and you have a product and you're funding somebody to determine whether the product is safe, maybe it's even a vaccine or a drug, and the person comes up with results that claim it's not safe. Well, if you want to protect your product, you do anything to keep that result from being published.
1: Do they do they just tell scientists not to publish, or do they tell them massage the data and make it look? Oh, you know, in,
2: in every way possible. Uh, if they can get the scientist to ignore the negative results and only report the positive, they would do that. If the scientist is insistent upon publishing all the results, both positive and negative Then they will look at the contract to determine who has the authority. And I would advise anybody who takes corporate money, if they have to, to look at their contract very carefully to make sure that they don't lose any autonomy in terms of doing the work or publishing the work.
1: So what happens if someone is relying on it for their Ph.D. or, you know, they're a professor if they don't publish for, let's say, a whole year and they're a major source of funding? What do they do?
2: That's a big problem. A postdoc or a a graduate student can be told, well, if you if you publish this result, uh, you can get sued by the funder or I won't give you a recommendation. So if you if you have integrity, you will do the research and see where it leads. And if you can publish those results, but it's true that scientists in training have been told to avoid certain areas because it would not be good for their, for their professional life.
1: Um, what are some recent examples you see of conflicts or problems? Do you see anything surrounding, you know, for instance, coronavirus or vaccines or climate change, or what do you see as contentious areas of science?
2: Well, certainly climate change. And we've seen what happens in government when policy wants to control the science of climate change. But there are companies that will only fund research that suggests that the oil and coal industry are here to stay and that there should be no constraints on um, utilizing fossil fuels. When we know that many scientists have agreed that the future is not in fossil fuels, not if we want to have a, a healthy climate. So and there are people who are explicitly in favor of fossil fuel futures like the Koch brothers who've made fortunes on fossil fuels. So if you are a scientist and you want to get funding for your work, you have to be very careful that you don't take funding from a foundation or a corporation that's going to put constraints on the inquiry that you do, on the investigations that you make, or on the results that you get. It's a very serious issue. And in 1980, the government actually passed a law called the bayh Act. And that law made it easier for corporations to form partnerships with universities. And those partnerships meant that they would fund the research that provided help to those corporations. So the Bayh-Dole Act was one of the stimulants for creating university industry partnerships that have not always benefited scientists.
1: Um, what about uh, NIH funding or government funding? Are there restrictions or is it pretty, uh, pretty black and white?
2: Until uh, the last administration, the NIH has been, you know, pretty rational and honest about Funding research and not telling the investigators what outcome to get. So, uh, and the same is true with the National Science Foundation. Overall, over the years, they stay arm's length about what they expect to find from the research. They let the investigator reach their conclusions through their investigations, and they don't control investigators on whether or where they should publish the results. That hasn't been true in the past few years when politics has entered science in a big way, and the administration, the last administration, did not want any published results that was inconsistent with the policies of that administration. So those agencies can be influenced, but in the past, they, they have been quite independent.
1: Uh, How did you know that, you know, a given administration wants to uh, politicize science? Like what artifacts would tell you that?
2: Well, when you find out that they don't want to have the words climate change in any of their uh, websites, when you hear that they don't want any negative things being reported about coal or uh, fossil fuels, then you know that the political side of the agency is influencing what the scientists can say about their work. This is
1: yeah, Where did you see that? When, when did that come out? How many years is, ago?
2: This is well known that the websites were cleaned up, so to speak, and uh, the most recent example of this was a policy that was issued by the Environmental Protection Agency about what type of research they were allowed to use in their regulations of toxic chemicals the requirement was that they could only use research in which the research data was open to everybody to look at which meant that if they had epidemiological studies with anonymous people in those studies which is typical of what you would do when you ask people to get involved in an epidemiological study, that those research results could not be used or used effectively in regulations because an outside stakeholder would not have access to the original data and the names of the people who provided that data. Now, that was just litigated in the courts and thrown out in one court case. But that's the kind of thing you see when politics enters into the science of federal agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency.
1: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, I mean, what, what do you, in your estimation, what science do you think was uh, dampened and which was highlighted or heightened uh, under that kind of policy?
2: Well, public health science, which uses epidemiological studies and brings in people who were exposed to certain chemicals to study the effects of those chemicals, those people are brought into the study and given anonymity so that their names are not released. And if you can't do studies like that, then you're really uh, at a great loss to produce evidence that a chemical is dangerous to society.
1: What do you so, think about the current uh, ethical standards for you know that that IRBs will govern? Do you think that they are set at a at a good point, or are they too harsh or too lax?
2: I don't. I think the IRBs are overseen by each institution. Every university has an IRB. They operate under general standards of practice, but on any specific case, it's the individual IRD that makes a decision about whether or not the the people involved in the study are protected, whether their autonomy is protected, and whether their privacy is protected. So if there's any problem with an IRB, then the National Institute of Health can investigate it. They can penalize a university if they're violating the standards of conduct of IRBs. And of course, this is um, IRBs were only introduced in the, ni- in the late 1970s and 1980s. Before that, people were brought into clinical trials and experiments without any protections at all. So it's a fairly new process. And overall I think it's done well. People on the IRBs are pretty responsible. And there's even outside people from the institution who oversees what goes on with the IRB. So it's not just an internal affair. So
1: have you so you've written a book about some of these conflicts. Have you gotten blowback? By reporting on this stuff or what's been your career experience like?
2: The conflicts that well, the blowback that I got was came much earlier in my career before I had tenure. When I was um, supervising a group of students to do a study of a hazardous waste site in Massachusetts and the students were going to report the results of their finding, which was a policy and science. Report and a vice president of a powerful chemical company came to visit the president of my university to ask that I be fired for daring to write a report about their operation in a town in Massachusetts. I'm pleased to say that the president of Tufts explained that we have academic freedom at the university and professors are allowed to publish and do research on topics and we don't have control over that. So that was the eye opener for me, but beyond that I you know may have gotten a lawyer's letter about something I may have written about in a book but nothing nothing that uh, would bring me into a litigation or anything like that. My guess is that I I haven't threatened the corporations too great for them to make it difficult for me. Mm-hmm. To research or publish, and if I were that threatening, I think there would be more litigation against me. Are
1: there, are there examples of scientists you've seen just uh, you know beaten up over their work, essentially, or just oh, totally discredited?
0: Absolutely. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
2: Absolutely, and I've written about this in a book called Science in the Private Interest, which was published in two thousand three, and. A friend, a person I became friends with, who had studied the effects of lead on children for his entire career. And um, he had published a number of path breaking articles, some of which were responsible for the country removing lead from gasoline. Wow. Remember, the lead industry was around for 50 years, and they made a lot of money on putting lead in paint and in gasoline and in many other things that permeated our lives. And a corporation hired some scientists to investigate his research, and they caused a tremendous amount of trouble for him, so much so that his university had to close his laboratory down so they could study the allegations made against him by these scientists who were hired by the corporation. This is a well-known case, and I talk about it and how heroic he was to stand firm for his work, which has stood the test of time. So yes, when you threaten the corporation's bottom line, um, they will take action against you. There's no question about it. And I, I highlighted the work of three scientists in that book who did what I call public interest science. And Mm. public interest science is when you're not funded by corporations to do the work, but where you feel that there is an endangerment in society, and you pursue the research to try to expose it.
1: What happens with private funding? Do they still end up in battle with, with certain corporations, or what happens?
2: Look, there's a lot of privately funded research. Some of it is honest, and some of it is not. The the, uh, the book talks about, uh, well, both books, the one that was published called Conflicts of Interest in Science and the book that's called Science in the Private Interest, talk about the pharmaceutical industry and how they've tried to control the outcome of research in their industry mm-hmm. to prevent studies that were done that indicated that drugs were dangerous. And there are many examples of that. So I think the scientific community has to be very cautious about accepting funding. And once they do, they have to make sure that they have complete autonomy to do the research and to publish the results. There should so be can, no, no caveats that only results that we like are publishable.
1: So how can, how can someone tell if someone's a layperson? and they're reading a scientific paper, what could they do? And if someone is even a scientist, and they're reading a scientific paper, like what, what are some warning signs that the paper may be problematic?
2: Yeah. Well, for 20 or 30 years, I've been supporting the idea of disclosure of conflicts of interest. So the first thing you look for that the journal it's published in has a conflict of interest disclosure policy. It's transparent. In that case, then the person has to disclose where the funding came from whether they have any equity interest in the company that funded their research. That's a warning signal right there. If I read a paper and it said that uh, they now have a, a safe cigarette, safe cigarette, tobacco cigarette, and then I found out that the person who wrote the paper was funded by the tobacco company, I would throw away the paper. I wouldn't even read it. Because the tobacco industry has been so extreme in trying to create science that supports the safety of tobacco, they would set up independent company independent um, nonprofit organizations funded by the tobacco industry that would only report results suggesting that tobacco was safe and did not cause cancer or emphysema so The tobacco industry, the lead industry, the uh, asbestos industry, for 30 to 50 years try to create the science to support their products. And other people who have written books about this, so it's well documented in the literature about the way that some corporations have done what they've done to uh, support their products and to distort the scientific record.
1: So these papers that are written, you think by conflicted scientists, is it safer not to read them at all? Or can you read them but with a discerning eye and still get some good information out of
2: them? That's a good question. There's enough scientific evidence out there for any product that is not conflicted. So I would look at the best journals that have good conflicts of interest policies. Many of the journals would not accept an editorial or a scientific review from someone who had a conflict of interest with a particular product. So excellent journals like the Journal of the American Medical Association would not accept an editorial from a tobacco-funded scientist that claimed that tobacco was not harmful because there's so much conflict of interest in that kind of setting. So if you're a skeptical reader, then you should make sure that the journals have a good conflict of interest policies, that any article you read, that there's disclosure of that individual and they don't have conflicts of interest, I would start there. And, you know, I wouldn't be reading third tier journal articles that don't have such policies where people are funded or are actually hired by companies. To say what they want to hear.
1: So, does this do these uh, biased papers stay published, and do they form the foundation for other opinions that may have, you know, maybe built on a leaky foundation? Like, what happens if um, someone doesn't realize that certain papers are biased, and they create a new theory based on them or a right. meta-analysis, and then that could, that these papers happen. are swept up? What happens then?
2: Sure. Well, that could happen. You have to have a very keen and skeptical eye when you're reading science papers, you know, especially if they're reach results that seem counterintuitive or that go against the great weight of evidence. So if somebody comes up with a, um, an article that says that uh, tobacco is safe after all these years of uh, evidence that it's dangerous, sure, you're going to be skeptical and you want to find out who this person is, who's funding them. And whether they have a close connection with a corporation that would benefit from saying these things, and if they do, I don't bother reading it.
1: What about um peer review itself? you know I've heard that uh, you know if you're writing an article that the the peer reviewers don't like that means that it, it may not show up in uh, in some or any journals. Oh. so what about that process? How is that uh, affected? Do you know like two because corporations I, for
2: instance pay peer reviewer. I wrote a book called GMOs Decoded, and it it may have been somewhat more skeptical than your typical scientific community, especially plant geneticists. And it went through seven reviews, very tough reviews. So if I couldn't show that the claims that I were making were based upon good scientific results, it wouldn't have been published. So I I really think that peer reviews are good things. They keep you on your toes. They challenge you. If you can't support what you're saying, you shouldn't say it. So uh, it doesn't mean that something that's peer-reviewed is always going to be true. Science is always tentative. We're always going to get more knowledge. We're always going to find more information that could falsify a hypothesis that everybody has accepted. That's the nature of science. It's never in its final form. But you always have to look at where the weight of evidence is at any particular time. So I'm totally in favor of peer review, even though it's a great burden on anyone who's trying to get published. So uh, I go through it all the time. I may not always agree with all of my reviewers, but I have to show that the claims that they're making are either incorrect or I have to make some modifications in my paper or my book. That's the best way we do it. Books that are published by university presses have significantly high peer review processes. If you publish a book with a mass audience, a popular press, they don't go through anything like that. They don't have peer reviewers the way academic presses have. Yeah. And I I know that for sure because I've published with very respectable Academic presses, and I've also published with a few uh, mainstream presses that don't have the same don't have the same review process. So I can attest to the fact that academic press books are much more highly respected, and they're likely to have much better peer review than other books.
1: So, do you think the scientific process is still pretty um, pretty balanced and neutral, or do you think it's it's very corrupted? Like, what's your overall position?
2: By and large, I think scientists are respected and and they're virtuous people. And, you know, especially um, nowadays where they have to uh, be transparent about their financial connections. I think they're much more tuned to financial conflicts of interest. And I think most scientists are trying to do the right thing.
1: Interesting. Um, what do you think is ahead for the future of science? Are there any big movements or motions or changes coming? Or do you think it's just, you know, it's going to continue as usual?
2: I think um, universities that are educating scientists are trying very hard to maintain credibility. They don't want to see any of the scientists that have gotten PhDs from those universities to be corrupted. So I, I think there's uh, major universities are very sensitive to honesty and integrity, plagiarism, things like that. And many of the universities have courses in ethics and science. So I, I think we're we're moving in the right direction. As a, Again, there was a time when we didn't have IRBs, when we didn't have disclosure of conflicts of interest. We now do have that. And I think that's improved. The scientific process. Well,
1: what, what do you think um, from here? What are some of the dangers, and what are some of the things that need to be done, in your opinion? Are there any improvements yeah, that, that are need needed be, or changes need
2: to be done? For example, we have many scientists working in federal agencies, and they're honest people and they do good work. They they want to publish their results. They shouldn't be controlled by the policy ends of those agencies. They should be allowed to publish their results the way any other scientists do in universities. If that were the case, we would have a much broader range of scientists than we do today. But we now know that a scientist at a public agency sometimes has to give their paper to the policy sector of that agency to decide whether it's gonna be published or not. So we have ways to go to protect scientists who are working in public agencies. They, they should have the same kind of ethical standards and protections that scientists at universities have. We're protected, protected by academic freedom. If, mm. I, um, if I publish a paper uh, on some product or process and it is not consistent with how my university runs, I, they can't stop me from publishing the paper. I mean, supposing I publish a paper that says universities should get rid of fossil fuel mm. <laughs> and it's not in the interest of the university to make such a, a change right away. Okay, so, you know, maybe I have an argument. Maybe it's a good one. Maybe it's a bad one. But it can't really stop me from publishing the paper. Whereas in a corporation, that paper would never get published because the paper has to go through the corporate structure. So universities are one of the unusual places where you have this kind of academic freedom. We should have it for scientists in government because they are trained just as university scientists are. Somebody working for the National Science Foundation who is doing research, somebody working for NIH who's doing research, somebody like Anthony Fauci who speaks because he understands the science and he's not going to let the policy people tell him what he can say. That is the highest standard of science. And whether he's working in an agency or in a university, he should have that right to publish and to speak truth independent of what the policy people think is the right thing to say at the right time.
1: So you what know that um, recently with all these preprints papers and preprint servers that you know haven't undergone peer review, do you think it's a good or a bad
2: thing? Yeah, well that's a mixed bag. That's a mixed bag because you can get intimidated by putting it out like that. And that's a good question. It's worked well in physics. <laughs> Physicists have used it very effectively. And that's where it started. Where where after all it's a kind of peer review process that everybody has access to. Usually, you you write a paper and you get two people who are asked, or three people, if it's controversial, or four people, or five people, if it's very controversial, to do the peer review. But when you put it out online, you can have hundreds of people in the peer review process, and that could be valuable, or it could be cumbersome. It could be people shooting from the hip. It could be corporate-funded scientists who don't want to see something being published. I have a few papers that I've published about what happens when scientists say things that go against the grain. And sometimes it's, it's terrifying to see uh, people lose their jobs or lose their, just lose their, their promise in the future. And I've written about these things. You know, somebody can publish a paper and, and the results could be wrong, even though it's peer-reviewed, but that's the way science progresses to find mistakes and errors and to go on to to get it right yeah. uh, you know if if an experiment is done and somebody doesn't like the result well it has to be redone try to redo it you try to replicate it some people have actually withdrawn their papers because they couldn't replicate their own results oh. that's the right way to approach things yeah and um, withdrawing with papers is is common practice in science people who can't stand behind their research will withdraw the paper. You know, that's, that's honesty.
1: Yeah. It's a tough thing to do, but yeah, it makes sense.
2: Well, anyway, I have to get going right now. I hope, I hope it's been okay.
1: helpful. Yeah, this has been great. Well, last question, how do people find you if they're interested in your work? Where do they find your books? Oh, and-
2: well, if, if you Google me at Sheldon, S-H-E-L-D-O-N, Krimsky, K-R-I-M-S-K-Y, my website will come up almost immediately and all of my works i mean all of my papers that have been published can be downloaded okay. you know you don't you no need to pay money to buy them and the books well they're out there and uh i can't make them available for free right. uh, but um they certainly you know you expose yourself when you write articles when you write books yep. and um naturally you're going to get people who critical and uh, especially when you write books about gmos or chemical mm-hmm. pesticides or herbicides or things like that but okay, you know cool. all, all i can say is i i don't get corporate funding for my work and um i just try to find the truth as i see it and try to use the best science to get the outcomes that i get
1: well very good so thank you for coming on the podcast your... i appreciate it if you like this podcast please click the link in
0: the description to subscribe and review us on itunes